Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hey, good morning, Ralph. How are you doing? Hey there. Good morning, Ugo. It's not morning for you, though, huh? No, it's uh, <laughs> mid-afternoon here. Uh, I'm home uh, near Milan. Uh, nice spring day today after uh, some rain yesterday. And how's, uh, how are things over in Chicago? Very good. We're uh, having our most beautiful day, warmest day of the year, about 74 Fahrenheit. So uh today's uh cubs opening day so it's going to be a good day here in chicago what what happened and we we met last time we were in uh in munich munich airport when we met and then you you went to georgia right and then back to chicago that's right i was doing a scouting trip to uh to, to tbilisi georgia a little bit of the surrounding area for our uh, treasures of armenia and tbilisi georgia trip coming up this fall so getting some last-minute scouting in there. It's a, it's a beautiful town. Uh, we should talk about it someday. Talk yeah. Georgia and that, that, that town, it's a beautiful place. And what's next for you? Uh, in about, uh, I don't know, eight or ten days, I'm be, I'll be heading off to Morocco for a group trip, and then I've got some scouting in the south of France. Then I've got a group trip in Portugal, and then some more scouting in the southwestern part of France, the Dordogne region. And that kind of gets me through the next two months into June. Cool. How about yourself? What do you have coming up? Uh, I've got my uh, a workshop here in Milan, actually, in, uh, uh, in a couple of weeks from today with our common friend Steve Simon. Oh, yeah. And then I'm off to Scotland in May for, uh, for a week of uh, basically scouting with a small group of people. We're going to scout uh, the Scottish Highlands and the Isle of Skye. That's where April and June for me, and May for me, yeah. Okay, so we're back on the show with uh, the Traveling Image Makers podcast, just in case people were wondering what they're hearing about. This is going to be episode 164, and we have our new guest for, um, for today, our guest, uh, he's connecting with us from from actually close to where you are. He's in Toronto, Canada, and his name is Ariel Estulin. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. And Ariel has been uh, a photographer for over 20 years. He studied with uh, Freeman Patterson and recently became a photography educator in Canada, as well as offering workshops in places like Nepal and Tibet. So welcome, Ariel. How are you doing? Hi guys, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. So, how are things for you? What's, uh, anything else that you would like to, to add to my short introduction? Um, no, I think that's good. I mean, I wish I could say we we have a beautiful spring day here as well, but winter still has its grip here in Toronto and we're eagerly waiting for spring to arrive. Poor guy. Yeah, it's Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, we were talking about uh, Canada or uh, Toronto and Chicago kind of being sister cities, not too far away from each other. But that's right. Uh, that's hopefully right. You'll get what we've got in just a day or two. I think it moves that way. Yeah, 
we're the same except in the weather. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned the fact that you now offer workshops in places like uh, Nepal and Tibet, and I would especially love to hear you talking about those countries, uh, especially about Nepal, because I don't think we ever had a guest on the show talking uh, at length about this country. We've had guests that have been to this country. I think, Ralph, you've been to Nepal as well? I have. I've uh, done on tours there and to Bhutan uh, as a single trip, Nepal and Bhutan. So it's a wonderful place. So I look forward to, to hearing uh, Ariel's perspective on it. So I was reading Ariel's post on his website, talked uh, the title of the beaten path in Nepal. And uh, this has intrigued me to, to know more. And uh, specifically, I would like to know what, what does it mean to be, to go off the beaten path in Nepal? To, to me, Nepal itself is pretty much off the beaten path. It's not on my typical radar. So mm -hmm. I would like to know what you mean by that and what's so special about uh, your trip there. Sure. Um, so, I mean, for me, I think in general, um, I try and, you know, seek places that, not a lot of people go to and i'm always after um especially when i'm traveling i'm after authenticity right a lot of us when we go traveling overseas to different countries um we sometimes uh, fall into the uh into the familiar so you know having lunch having hamburgers for lunch having pizzas for lunch things that we're so used to at home and part of traveling for me is experiencing more of the local culture whether it's uh, the cuisine, whether it's their daily routines, or so something different, something new. Um, and also, you know, in Ontario, there's a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm a big outdoor person. I do a lot of canoeing, a lot of hiking, a lot of camping. And even there, when I do trips, I try and go to places that not a lot of people get to, just because I want to have that authentic experience, uh, something, you know, off the beaten path, something that a lot of people don't actually get to. And that's uh, part of why, I wanted to get to Nepal is because Nepal is not a very uh, popular destination in terms of places to go travel around the world, but it also offers that really interesting perspective of getting in touch with the locals and especially if you get um, off the beaten path in some of these places in the outskirts of where most tourists don't go. How did you actually get off the beaten path? How did you get to this off the beaten path place? Was it air? <laughs> Planes, planes, trains, automobiles. Um, a combination of all three, actually. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the first time I went to Nepal uh, was eight, eight or nine years ago. And it was almost by accident, actually. Actually, almost never ended up in Nepal. And um, my wife and I were traveling to Ladakh, which is in northern India. Um, it's also known as the uh, Indian Himalayas. Uh, the culture is very Tibetan. The people are very Tibetan. It just happens to be that the border was drawn above them, not below them. And so we had planned to spend about a month exploring that country. And about two weeks before we had left for that trip, they had a cloudburst event. And so a cloudburst is when a lot of water is released um, very suddenly, and there's usually floods. Right. And Ladakh is a very arid, dry country. And so when that does happen, it's usually fairly disastrous. Mm -hmm. And so towns were washed away, you know, muds, mudslides, roads had 10 feet of mud on them. And so we didn't want to go vacationing in a, in a disaster zone. Because if you remember, you know, 10 years ago, 
maybe a bit longer, the big tsunami that happened in uh, Indonesia. And, you know, I saw pictures of people sunbathing on the beach. And just behind them, you could see people looking for their relatives and looking for things, you know, trying to find their loved ones. And I, I didn't want to go uh, vacationing in a disaster zone. And so I called some of the local tourist agencies and said, look, I want to come to your country, but is it safe? Is it is it okay to do that? And the response was, you know, more than ever, we need your tourist dollars right now. And so we spent a little bit of time in Ladakh, but ended up going to Nepal as well as, as a second part of the trip. That's kind of, kind of how I, we ended up in Nepal. Um, as, and as far as off the beaten path there, um, we didn't really have any itinerary. We just showed up in Kathmandu. And Ralph, you probably know in Kathmandu, there's, you know, a thousand and one tourist offices. Mm-hmm. And literally, we just walked into the first one and said, um, where do most people go traveling in Nepal when they're hiking? They said either to uh, Everest Base Camp or to Annapurna. And we said we want to go the other way. And so we mm-hmm. ended up going to a place called Kankanjanga, which is on the eastern part of the country, very close to the Indian border. Um, you know, it takes uh, it took us two days of bus rides. And when I say two days, I'm talking about 16 hours in the bus every day just to get to the spot to start our trek. And then once you're there, uh, it's about a three-week hike to do a circuit route back to your uh, back to the beginning. And so that to us was kind of the introduction, this horrendous 48 hours of bus rides followed the most, by the most spectacular three weeks of hiking um, I've ever had in my life. I guess it was worth it. Absolutely. You know, it, it really introduced me into the country. Uh, and that part of Nepal is definitely off the beaten path. Um, Nepal is divided into hiking regions. So you might have heard of uh, Everest Base Camp, of Annapurna. And that's where most of the hiking tourists go. Uh, for, as a comparison, so Annapurna, on the average, gets about 80,000 tourists a year annually. Uh, Everest Base Camp gets about 30,000 tourists annually, and Kankanjunga, uh, with uh, 2016 sets, gets about 1,000 people a year. Wow. So not a lot of people. And so um, you really experience authenticity there, and the people that live there, they don't rely on tourism. They're mostly subsistence farmers. Um, if you do happen to pass their village and stay in their house, it's just a bit of extra income for them. And so, you know, the the push for tourism there is not very high and so you get to really experience authenticity and that's what i'm after is that really authentic experience with the locals i was surprised to to read on your blog post that in terms of accommodation you basically go to to a village and you knock on the the doors of of people there yeah that's right so the way nepal works uh in some of these popular areas such as Everest base camp or annapurna is they have a uh uh, a, tea, a tea house trek established. And so you hike from village to village and uh, there are specific accommodations that house all these tours because you kind of need that. When you have 30,000 people walking through your area, you need to have some things set up for for, for those numbers. In, in where I was in Kankanjanga, they don't have that because they don't rely on tourism. And so you literally walk into a village and you start knocking on people's houses and you say, can we stay here for the evening? And most of the time, there's no problem because it's it's extra income for them. You can totally see they've kicked somebody else out of the room because you're staying in somebody's room. <laughs> <laughs> so whether they're kids or somebody else that goes to the neighbor's house for the night, 
but you're taking over somebody's room, but then you're embedded within that family. And so you have dinner together, you have, you know, you become part of their, uh, part of their family, even, even just for an evening, right? So you become part of their daily routine. And so it's a really nice introduction um, of, of being in Nepal to become embedded within the family. That's Art. that's somewhat expected. I mean, the, we're not just oh, we, with this guy here <laughs> coming here. They that's a routine for them to to host uh, travelers. But yeah, possibly, but mm. uh, it's not something they rely on because the numbers yeah. are just not there. And so, if you do happen to uh, knock on somebody's door and they do have space, they're more than welcome to to host you for the evening. I see. What. Uh, and staying in those kinds of accommodations, number one, uh, about how much did it cost per night? And at what altitude was most of this uh, three-week walk that you were doing? Yeah, so in terms of cost, I mean, Nepal is a third-world country, so things are fairly inexpensive. Um, we were paying maybe $4, $5 a night. These are U.S. dollars for accommodations and then another four or five dollars for for our meals so for ten dollars a night you get room and board essentially um if you're expecting a you know a a hotel a four-star hotel you're going to be very sad, sadly disappointed <laughs> these are very basic accommodations uh usually obviously just a bed sometimes there's a mattress sometimes not uh, and the meals are also very basic uh, you know most nepalis uh eat two meals a day their first meal is in the morning, and they eat dalbat. Dalbat is a combination of rice and lentils. And then in the early evening, they eat a second meal of, of dalbat. So it's, you know, their cuisine is very simple. Dalbat in the morning, dalbat in the evening. And, and that, that's what you do, right? That's the realities of, of their cuisine. Um, on our trek, uh, occasionally you'd find some farmers that have chickens or some other meat. So you would pay a little bit extra to for them to uh, to slaughter one of the chickens, and you have some meat in your in your meal, some some protein. But that's essentially it. So you kind of get into the routine of you know you're gonna have dalbat in the morning, and then you're gonna have dalbat in the evening, and it's two meals a day, and it's very easy because you know exactly what's for dinner. <laughs> in terms of photography, what were the the main points of interest, the main subjects that you you managed to shoot? Yeah. Um, so at the time, I mean, at the time, I was mostly a landscape photographer. Right? That's kind of where I started. And so I did a lot of research on photographs of Nepal. Like we all do when we travel to locations, we, you know, we look on the Internet to see what's what's out there in terms of image possibilities. And so I had a very long shot list of, of images of mountains and, and all this scenery. Um, but that to me, th this trip was kind of a pivot point for me because I had realized that people, uh, especially in a culture like Nepal, are as important as the actual mountains themselves. And so there was this shift for me that happened where I started actually to take pictures of, of people, something that I'd never, ever done before. Before this trip, I could count the number of times I've shot people seriously on my left hand or my right hand, right? I just never, just never did that. I was such a purist. But something shifted on this trip for me, and so I started to uh, record and capture the culture because it was just such an interesting uh, moment for, for me to kind of find that little niche. So you, you started photographing more people, as you said, and 
Uh, how are the interactions between yourself and the locals? Uh, for instance, do they speak English? Are they willing to be photographed? Um, so they definitely do not speak English. That's yeah. uh, <laughs> that's an easy one. Um, I find Nepal, the people of Nepal, uh, they're very open to being photographed. I mean, in today's culture, you know, you're not going to find very many places that actually don't know what what a camera is, right? So everybody knows what a camera is, whether you're whether you're first world, second world, third world country, you know what a camera is. And so, you know, there's a there's an interaction that happens, right? Um, you you try to create a dialogue or engage in a dialogue, and uh, you can point to your camera. I mean, the camera is a is an international language of you know, can I take your picture? And sometimes they say yes, but most uh, and and sometimes they say no. But I I never found any issues with taking pictures of people in Nepal because they're just such a warm, friendly um, people, and you know, I've always loved taking taking their, their pictures. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, as you said, the, the camera is like a universal language. You can just point at the camera, and just uh, uh, people will understand that they you want to take a photo of them. But um, what about actually uh, going to people's houses and getting uh, accommodation and food? Uh, did you have an interpreter? Uh, so that? we, so we had a guide for our trip, mm -hmm. and um, you know, in Nepal, especially when you're when you're trekking. Um, you can have a guide or you cannot have a guide. So places like Everest or Annapurna, the two popular places, uh, you probably don't need a guide because the routes are so well established and there's so many people there, you can just follow the hordes. In places like Kentinjanga, um, it's a little bit more difficult because there's many paths and sometimes you're not really sure if you're going the right way and there isn't that, uh, that the mass of tourists that you can sort of follow along the path. And so we hired a guide. Um, and for us, you know, it, it, it was actually something we didn't mind because we're contributing to the local economy. Um, you're paying them a little bit of money and, and they're carrying all your stuff, the porters. The porters carry your stuff and the guide is sort of the lead person that organizes everything for the trip. And so um, if, you're, if you're hiking at altitude um, and you're not carrying your backpack, it's a much more pleasant trip. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so for those of you who have hiked at altitude, you know that as soon as you get into altitude and you're not acclimatized properly, you know, it's a lot. It's a, it's a big burden. You're breathing heavily. You feel tired. And so if you just take off 40 pounds off your back, it makes the trip that much more pleasurable. Yeah, I think Ralph asked the, what, what altitude you went to, but I don't remember if you Yeah, if you <laughs> I didn't that. answer that. Mm -hmm. So this particular trek, we start in the lowlands. Um just a couple thousand meters, so it's fairly low. And then you very gradually, uh, this is a three-week three trek in Kanchenjunga, and because it's such a slow, gradual trek, you acclimatize very well. And by the time you get to the, uh, the base camp of Kanchenjunga, you are at uh, 52 or 5,300 meters. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite high. I mean, you, you know, if you just shoot up at 5,300 meters, um, you'd be in real trouble. Right? You're, you're, you, you wouldn't make it probably. <laughs> uh, and so because it's so gradual, your body climbs very, really well. And by the time you actually have 5,300 meters, uh, your body, your body's fully acclimatized and there's no, there's no issues, no problems. You know, speaking of, uh, hiring a guide, uh, that's, 
Uh, one of the best thing that one of the best things that I think people can do is hire a local guide in a destination. And I, I know when I was younger, I I think I was a little bit more of a purist, and I kind of wanted to just get into the culture on my own. But I, I think as I get older, I really appreciate uh, you know someone who can translate, who can uh, teach teach me about the culture and the people and all the traditions and things like that. And I think it's about the best money someone could spend. And, you know, sometimes we, we want to go on the cheap, but uh, it can be fairly inexpensive to hire a local guide in, in a lot of these places. And and what you get in return, I think, is just so worth it. Is, is that kind of what you found, Ariel? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the cost for a guide, um, we're looking at 10 to $20 uh, a day, Um yeah. So not not a lot of money for a lot of return, right? Yeah. And usually with the guide, uh, you kind of get, you know, depending on how many people, it was just myself, myself and my wife. So there were just two of us. So we needed uh, two porters and one guide. The guide usually doesn't carry any any anybody else's gear. He just carries his own stuff because he's the, you know, he's worked up to being a guide, so he doesn't have to carry anything. <laughs> yeah. And the porters carry everything else. So any supplies... They carry our own stuff uh, because some of this particular trek, we were actually uh, staying in, in tents as well. There were some spots, there were no villages, and we had to camp. So we were carrying tents, we were carrying uh, other food supplies, uh, stoves, and things like that as well. So it's kind of a combination, a, um, a trek where you're staying in people's houses, but also you're camping as well. Yeah. I'd like to uh, shift the topic a little bit and just move it to the other side of the Himalayas, because uh, I know you're also familiar with Tibet. Um, can you just give a, a little overview of what what, are, what is similar and what is different between the two countries in terms of photography, especially? Sure. Um, so Tibet is uh, so it's a place that I actually went for the first time um, this past fall. Uh, I did a workshop there. And in terms of the culture, I mean, Tibet politically obviously has a bit of a tumultuous past um, and still, you know, experiencing that a little bit as well. Uh, and the difference for me between Tibet and Nepal, um, visually, they're very, very similar, right? There's a lot of similarities in the culture. Tibet is uh, very, obviously, uh, the culture is Tibetan. And in northern uh, Nepal, along the Himalayas, there's a lot of Tibetan communities. So that part is, is very similar. Um, in terms of what I found to be very challenging and different is your ability to travel. In Nepal, you can travel wherever you want. And in Tibet, there are a lot of restrictions in place in for, placed on foreigners especially. So if you wanted to go to a particular place, it may not be open to foreigners. If you want to stay in a particular village in Tibet, it may not be open to, for, open to foreigners. And so, you know, China has put a lot of restrictions on, on how foreigners travel. And so that is, uh, you know, I find a bit of a challenge is you can't freely explore wherever you want. And on top of that, you have to have a guide in uh, a local Tibetan um, in Tibet. You can't travel freely on your own. You need to have somebody locally that is a, a local tourist operator that is registered and you go through all the proper channels. So there's a lot of formality a lot of uh paperwork to get there but visually i think it's just as stunning mm -hmm. 
Was it more difficult with regards to visas or anything, Tibet versus Nepal? Um, a little bit. So Nepal is very simple visa terms. You uh, you get it at the airport when you land. Um, you know, very simple. You pay, I don't know what it is now, but thirty or forty dollars American, and you get your uh, your visa for thirty days or sixty days or ninety days, I believe. Um, in Tibet, uh, the process is a little bit different, a little bit more challenging, but you first need to get a China visa, and that you could do at your local uh, consulate in your country. So once you get the Chinese visa, and then you book your trip to Nepal, the local travel agency in Tibet is the one that arranges your Tibet visa. So uh, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a two-step process. It's It's... You know, it's not that difficult. It's just a little bit more more work to get it. Yeah, Ariel, uh, talk to us about uh, how you, with regards to photography, how you packed for this trip. You know, did you are you normally uh, you know do you carry a lot of gear, or and you carried less for this? How did you arrange for that? Um, yeah. So in terms of Nepal, um, because like I said, the porters are carrying all of your all of your personal gear, so you know, clothes, sleeping bags, anything else that you don't really need throughout the day. So that they carried on their own. And then I only carried what I needed for, for my day trip. So obviously my camera, um, sometimes I would bring a tripod, sometimes not. My water bottle, right? Maybe some rain gear as well. And so my kit was fairly condensed, fairly small, just because I don't want to carry 40 pounds of camera gear and hike up 5,000 foot mountains right and so i took uh i took two lenses i took a, a 70 to 40 wide angle and i took a 70 to 200 zoom lens um and i took sorry i took a third lens a 50 millimeter prime just to get a bit of shallow depth of field if i wanted to take some portraits so it's fairly condensed fairly small uh and that's because you know i didn't want to carry a lot of weight on me throughout the day and that's mostly what i did Understandable. Earlier, you mentioned the fact that you started out as a pure landscape photographer, but now, uh, especially after your first trip to Nepal, if I understand correctly, uh, you started being more of a varied approach to your subjects and including more people because you say this, they are the, the culture of the place. The people are important in that respect. So um, would you like to to say more about that topic, especially why you think that it's important for photographers to uh, evolve in a way their approach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, especially for people at the beginning of photography, I mean, landscape is such an easy entry into into the art. And you know, I would say you know, rocks and mountains tend not to move very much, so it gives you lots of time to think, lots of time to examine your scene. Um, and so there's no pressure, right? There's not a lot of pressure when you're when you're shooting landscapes because you have that flexibility of time. And so, um, and that's kind of how I started, and that's how a lot of people start as well, with with that in mind. But I think um, as you progress and as you move forward as an artist, you need to start, you know, you need to evolve. And what I see a lot of, um, and you, I think you alluded to this earlier, there's a lot of imitation happening. We see a lot of pictures of sameness. So, for example, um, Ralph, 
you may have heard of Horseshoe Bend in Big Bend National Park. Sure. Right? It's, it's this beautiful horseshoe bend of the river. And if you punch that into Google, you'll see thousands of image, images, and they're all the same. Right? It's, just, it's the sameness over and over and over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with imitation. Right? Imitation is how most artists start, whether you're a photographer, whether you're a musician, whether you're a, a painter. You, know, you all have to start from somewhere. But at some point, you need to start um, finding your own voice as a photographer, right? And then for me, um, you know, I started finding my, my own voice of becoming more of a travel photographer, not just landscapes, but including people and culture, because culture in places like Tibet and places like Nepal are what sets uh, that place apart from, let's say, North America or, or Europe. And so by including, you know, people in my shots, uh, that to me was a shift. That was an evolution of of just pure landscape, and so that's how I sort of perceive myself now. Is I'm I'm a travel photographer, not just a landscape photographer, because it tells a fuller um, picture, a fuller story. And photographers are storytellers, and if we're not telling the fuller story, we're not sort of doing our job at at passing on the information. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, you know, you you go to a place like like the Himalaya and, all you, and like you say, all you think of is the landscapes, but then you get there and you start to see all these other, these other parts of the, the story. And yeah, uh, absolutely. That. Yeah. And, um, so getting out of your comfort zone, photographing people now is, is this one of the first times that you were able to do that? Can you see this helping you in other locations around the world? In terms of shooting people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I'm a fairly uh, reserved uh, individual, right? And I find people that if you have a very outgoing personality, it's very easy for you to approach people and shoot people. I don't have that luxury. You know? I'm a fairly uh, um, inner person. So for me, you know, I, I have to force myself to do it, right? Um, and I either... I sort of take a two-prong approach one is i'm either a fly on the wall okay i'm just invisible to the background and and shooting uh people or if uh you know if there's an interaction if the person sees me and we make a connection whether it's um you know we lock eyes and then i you know i try to approach them i try and and say hi i'm i'm so and so my name is ariel i'm a photographer can i take your picture they don't understand English again. The universal language of pointing to your camera is enough to tell them I want to take your picture. And the way I think about it is, if I was that person on the other end of the lens, how do I feel if somebody's sticking a lens in my face trying to take a picture of me? Right? It wouldn't feel very great. So at least you know have that interaction, have that courtesy of of asking for permission. I see a lot of uh, photographers just bring out their long lens and shove people shove, shove lens in people's faces and start taking pictures. And that's not a very comfortable place to be. You haven't made that connection to be afforded the opportunity to to take someone's picture. So I always try and make a connection with with that person if there's an opportunity, because then it allows you to um, to enter their their world and their acceptance. I think you basically already replied to the question I was meaning to ask next, but I'll, I'll just do it anyway. And at, at the risk of touching what is a kind of a hot button topic, um, because we've uh, seen it a lot of discussion online about uh, instances where people were staging shots, 
travel photography shots with people and even somebody won contests with those with shots that were completely staged and then you see those behind the scenes uh scenes where uh, i don't know people taking photos of ethiopian tribes people or vietnamese rice farmers and there's a long line of photographers and people with a with a megaphone directing the scene and so on and it, and it kind of feels at least to me not not, not very nice, not very true. Uh, yeah. So I see that, that that's not your approach. Definitely, I, I can see it from the photos that I've seen on your website. But uh, would, would you like to add something more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the in, in the world of Instagram and photos because there's just so much out there today, right? Um, and kind of goes back to some of my earlier points about finding your own voice. And if you're... You know, if you're on a holiday and you only have two weeks of time, right, sometimes the tendency is to, is to just imitate, right, because you want to get a beautiful shot. And so imitation is very easy. You just look at the Internet, find, let's say, a horseshoe bend. You go to that spot, you take a picture, and boom, everybody thinks you're an amazing photographer. Um, but in terms of, you know, my approach, and I always look at authenticity. And if there's a crowd of people, I'll usually walk the other way, a crowd of photographers, because to me that tells me there's – there's something there that everyone's shooting, and it's just, it's just not interesting. That's not authentic. And so that's always been my approach is um, I tend to go the other way where there's a crowd of photographers because the chances are they're shooting something that everyone has already shot a thousand times. And that, to me, um, is not as interesting because I've moved past the point of, of imitation. You know, I'm now in, in the phase where I have my own voice and I want to express my own images and my own creative art. I'm not interested in imitating anybody else because I've done it already. I've learned from that and I move, moved on to the next sort of creative phase of my of my artistic form. I'm, I'm specifically uh, interested in how you uh, manage these when you lead workshops, right? Because then you might have 10 people in your group. I don't know how many, how big your groups are, but then 10 people is a small crowd and you, you lead them to a place and maybe there's a subject and then it ends up being 10 people shooting the same subject. Do you have some techniques or suggestions that you uh, employ to avoid uh, everyone having the same shot at the end of the day? Um, yeah, so when you're, you know, if you're shooting uh, people specifically, if we're talking about, um, I mean, one example that comes to mind is uh, when I had my workshop in Nepal a number of years ago, um, we stumbled upon a, a street barber, right? And magnificent scene. It's a barber in the middle of the street doing his craft, right? You don't see that very often in, in, in places like North America. And so having a group of people taking pictures of a street barber, it just, it just didn't, didn't work, right? You're, you're invading somebody's private space. And so we made an, an arrangement where um, I literally said to a, a guy, waiting for his haircut said i'll pay for your haircut if you let us take your picture i went to the barber and said i'm going to pay for his haircut if you allow us to um to take uh pictures while you're doing your art so it was a win-win for everybody you know the bar the barber got his uh his uh his money for the haircut the guy got a free haircut and all the people in the group got their pictures of uh of the action happening and so, I mean, I, I tend, I generally don't like to pay for photographs, but when you're in a group of photographers, um, it's kind of hard to be very stealthy when you're trying to capture something like that. 
And so there's a you know there's, there's a fine line between um, invading somebody's private space and and paying for that private space uh, access. Yeah, I often uh, recommend that uh, we we provide a lot of free time on our 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 trips and uh, recommend that people go out in small groups and and not necessarily on their own and shoot as teams. And oftentimes, you know, one person can engage the the subject, the other one can get more candid shots, and vice versa. Uh, also walking around with the local guide who can make conversation with people. Um, so, I mean, those are some kind of techniques that I use and, and, and splitting the group up into smaller groups and maybe doing shifts coming back in that kind of a situation where, you know, if you've got 10 people just photographing this one, one or two people, uh, that can be kind of clunky and, you know, it's kind of like circular firing squad. Yeah, it's, it's, it could be a bit too much for, for the photographers, a bit too much for the for the subject. Yeah, um, change the scene. Yeah, I mean, I might encourage them. You know, if, if I um, like when I'm when I'm shooting, I just I wander around a lot, right, looking for things. I'm sure we all have very similar. We you know we kind of wander around looking for things to photograph, and if I find something interesting, you know, maybe there's a person, maybe there's a monk against a backdrop doing his thing. You know, I'll go back to the group and say, like, there's a there's a really interesting scene just 50 meters up ahead of you. Um, you know, a couple, a couple of you, why don't you go and have a, have a look, check it out. Um, you know, it's an uh, uncomfortable place to be because some of you are, are afraid to take pictures of people, but really just force it upon yourself to go there, make an introduction, have some sort of connection and see if you can get some pictures out of it. And so that's how, you know, the process starts as you overcome some of these, um, some of these fears that a lot of people have of taking pictures of other people, right? It's a very legitimate fear. But the more you do it, and even for me, somebody who is a uh, who is fairly shy and reserved, you know, you, the more you force yourself, the easier it starts to become, and the more you're comfortable with actually approaching people, taking pictures of people, and trying to get something visually interesting. Great. Since we mentioned the fact that you lead workshops, do you want to uh, say a little bit more about that? Uh, you have. Um for instance, how your workshop are organized, what can people expect? Uh, we, I think we already mentioned the destinations, but uh, any upcoming workshops that people can sign up for soon, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. So I teach a lot uh, locally here in, um, in, in Ontario. Um, Ontario is the province here where Toronto is. And those are mostly uh, landscape-based because... Um, you know, Ontario has a lot of beautiful scenes and there's not, to me, not a lot of culture. I mean, I, I don't find taking pictures of, of North American people as interesting as taking pictures of people in Nepal. So those tend to be more general uh, landscape photography workshops. Uh, and in terms of overseas workshops, uh, I've got something coming up in the fall, in October, in Tibet. Uh, and that one's going to be a two-week trip from Lhasa all the way to Kathmandu. And then following that, there's another one that's going to be a uh, hiking, trekking photography workshop in Nepal as well. And that we're going to be going up to in the Everest region for two weeks as well. So that's what's coming up uh, in the fall. And where can people find more about those online? Yeah, um, I mean, my website is my name, arielestelin.com. And for the workshops, it is Outdoor Photo Journey is the website. 
outdoorphotojourney.com. Cool. We'll yeah. put links to that in the show notes. Uh, Ralph, do you have any other questions that you would like to ask? I don't think so. I think we, we covered everything. That was a really nice interview. Thanks uh, for giving us an introduction to Nepal and Tibet and the Himalayas. Yeah, thank you, guys. I pretty really enjoyed talking to both of you. And what about you, Ariel? Anything you would like to, to add? Um, no, I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's great to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, I think we did a pretty good job talking about Nepal. Great. Okay, so this concludes our interview today. I'd like to thank you, Ariel, for being with us today. Again, we'll put links in the in the show notes to uh, the website that you mentioned and to the the blog your blog post about your off the beaten path trip to Nepal, which uh, was really interesting. And I would encourage everyone to to check it out. And uh, as for our website, the Traveling Image Makers, uh, as always, you can find uh, all of our current and past episodes at ttim.photo. I think this is going to be episode 164, so it will be at ttim.photo slash 164. And Ralph, where can people find about you online? Yeah, so you can uh, find me all over the internet at, at Ralph Velasco and at Photo Enrichment on all the uh, social media platforms. Uh, our website is photoenrichment.com where you can get information about uh, all our upcoming trips. And if I could just mention that I have one room, double or single left on our Costa Rica Explorer trip coming up in late June, early July. And Copper Canyon's uh, pretty open for August. Uh, Romania sold out. And I just called our Armenia-Georgia trip a go. So that trip's going to happen. And then we've got spots left on India and Cambodia to round out the year. How about you, Ugo? What do you have coming up? Uh, I just uh, I was working furiously on my website these days for just putting out pages for all my tours of 2020. I've got too many of them to mention. So I'll just uh, tell people to go to tours.ucphoto.me. They will find everything about those. Um, and www.ucphoto.me. That's my main website. So that's uh, that's really all for this week. I think we'll be back next week. Again, regularly publishing an episode every week, hopefully for the near future at ttim.photo. And now let's get out and shoot. <laughs>